welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. We've been, uh, for the last couple months as a church, in the midst of a, uh, a sermon series through the book of 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and we have called this series a cross-shaped community because we've seen, really, that that's what is at the heart of this letter that Paul is writing to an early Christian community in a, in a Greco-Roman city called Corinth. They were under all sorts of cross-pressures, as we are in our culture, Uh, to define who they are, both as individuals and as a community. They were tempted to define themselves by their ambitions for wealth and power and strength and intelligence. And Paul writes to them that, no, uh, as a Christian community, you're not to be defined by your ambition for greatness, but you're to be defined by the cross, uh, the way of seeking not strength but weakness, not glory but humility, not gain but service and sacrifice. And so we've been looking and and hoping that uh, Jesus would help to shape our community and our individual lives more and more uh, into the shape of his cross uh, and the cross of his son. And so uh, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 
But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that members may have the same care for one another. If the member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. All right, you can be seated. Recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a church uh, in the Pacific Northwest, the, the far opposite corner of our country, uh, that generated a lot of uh, conversation when it launched a new ministry initiative. It was already uh, a church with multiple campuses throughout their city and even in other cities. Uh, but then they announced one day uh, in, a, in an online video that they had launched their latest location, uh, and they called this their global campus, and it was essentially an app that you download on your phone uh, where you can download the sermon uh, for the week, where you can interact in online communities and get to know friends, where conveniently enough, you can also give, I believe, online. Um, and the tagline for this was a new way to be church, a new way to be church uh, right here on the privacy of your own iPhone or Android device. I don't doubt uh, the intentions of this church to make their ministry broader, to include more people, uh, but it presses the question for us, doesn't it? Uh, what is church? What is the church? What does it mean to be a church? Is it something that is just uh, a sum of its parts? Take a little bit of teaching from here, some music from here, a few friendships from here, and you've got the church. What does it mean to be a church? You know, we have some resources in our Christian history uh, that would help us to answer this question. The Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin and, and, and their peers, uh, had to answer this question in their own time. Right now, while they could not have imagined a phone, let alone a cell phone, let alone, let alone somebody handing them a phone and saying, this is a church, uh, they still had to wrestle with, what does it mean to be a church? And usually their answer was along three lines, that a true church uh, is one that preaches and treasures the gospel. So it's a place where the word of God is preached. Uh, it's a place where uh, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are consistently and faithfully given out to God's people. 
And it's a place where church discipline is done, where, as, as Luke just promised, that he comes under the authority of leadership in the church to say that if I'm, if I'm sinning, I invite you in to confront me on it and to help me uh, to grow in my life. And so they identified those things. They were called the three marks of the church. But well before that, uh, the Apostle Paul, in writing to a church in Corinth, was also leading them to think through this question, what does it mean for the church to be the church? What is a church? We've seen throughout uh, this letter that Paul wrote that the church in Corinth uh, had more of Corinth in it than it did of Christ at times. That they were shaped by the culture around them uh, in many ways more than they were shaped by the narrative of Jesus and who he was. And one of the things that we have seen that was true of culture in Corinth was that it was an endlessly ambitious and self-promoting culture. One commentator put it this way, that in Corinth, self-promotion had been elevated to an art form, right? People loved, Paul uh, repeatedly uses a phrase in his writings to the Corinthians that he uses hardly anywhere else, and it's the language of boasting or of being puffed up like a, like a hot air balloon. That he constantly sees them, they're, they're bragging about themselves, they're trying to position themselves over and against their neighbors, trying to prove that one is better than the other. And what had happened was that the church, their, their expression of church, had come to be shaped by the same level of ambition and pride. So that the church was thought of as a gathering uh, where spectacularly gifted people put on their gifts and displayed their gifts for others to see and to admire and to be drawn to. Where wealthy patrons deserve places of honor, where they were known for their generosity and their support. And where everybody else, the less spectacularly gifted, the poor, the, the unsocially uh, prestigious, were expected to just kind of fall in line, play their role, give their money, and to choose which of these spectacularly gifted or wealthy people were most deserving uh, of their fawning praise. And so church uh, became uh, for them the place for the gifts of the few to be praised uh, by the many. And it seems uh, to me that our contemporary American context puts to a, to a large degree the same kinds of pressure on us. Uh, that oftentimes we as churches... Uh, can view our life together, can view what it means to be church, to be vehicles for gifted people to use their gifts while others of us choose which gifted people uh, we want to come around. Right? In all, in all seriousness, uh, the, the church app to do church on your phone is only marginally different than the way most of us approach church. Uh, it's, yes, it's different to have a completely disembodied experience of what's meant to be a communal reality. But very often when we, when, we, when we think of church, we think of choosing for ourselves where do we like uh, the gifts or the humor of a particular teacher? Where do we like the musical gifts of a particular group of musicians? Where do we like the spectacular relational gifts of perhaps uh, a youth minister? And so we choose the, the gifted people that we feel drawn to, and then we come and we sit and we receive. And this is uh, really dramatically different, dramatically different than the picture that Paul paints of what it means for us to be the church. He uses the metaphor uh, of the church as being the body of Christ. 
This is where we get uh, the very language of membership when it comes to the church. You know, very often we think of membership in a church along the same lines that we think of membership in a club, right? I'm a member of a church and I'm a member of a gym and I'm a member of a country club and I'm a member um, of various clubs and groups, free to come and go, free to choose my way into or out of. But Paul says, no, no, you're not a member of a church like you're a member of a club. You're a member of a church like your arm is a member of your body or like your eye is a member of your body. Organically knit together, an indispensable part, contributing something needed, valued, wanted, and required uh, in the health of the whole, that we are members of one another and members of Christ. This metaphor of the church's body uh, tells us at least two major things about the nature of the church, about what it is uh, that we're doing here when we gather together as a community. And the first is that the church is an extension of the person and ministry of Christ in the world. We are an extension of the person and ministry of Jesus in the world. You know, uh, if you've spent any time in the Bible or any time in church, this language of church is body can start to seem somewhat commonplace. Paul uses it fairly regularly. Uh, today, it's not uncommon to think of a social group uh, even as a body of people. And so we can miss out on just how strange the metaphor really is. That Paul says uh, that the nature of, the, of Christ's relationship to the church is one of a head's relationship to its body. That we are so intimately connected to Jesus that he is like the head, and we are the parts of his body. That's why Paul says in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say, so it is with the church, or so it is with you all, or, or how, this is how you might think of it. He says, this is the reality of Christ, that he is one body with his followers. I mean, it's incredible that Jesus, uh, by his grace, is willing not only to take us into himself and restore us into our relationship with himself, sinners, uh, broken people though we are, but that he actually knits us together in him in such a way that we are organically the expression of his will, heart, and desire in the world, in our very lives. I mean, think about the relationship your head has with your body, right? On a good day, your head controls what your body does, right? On a good day, my mouth is connected to my thoughts. And so what I think manages to, to find verbal expression as my tongue moves in my mouth. On a good day, my body, my hands go the direction that my mind tells them to go. The more coordinated of us, when we tell our bodies to run or to walk in a straight line, they do that, right? That what, is, what comes out of our mind finds its expression in the rest of our bodies. And Paul says that's precisely the way it's meant to be with us in Christ, that his thoughts, his desires, his values find their real outworking in our words, in our actions, in our love, and the, the way we apply ourselves in our bodies, Augustine, uh, the great teacher and saint of the third century, 
had a wonderful uh, way of talking about this vital union between Christ and the church. He says that Christ and the church put together make the total Christ. Totus Christus was his language. That Christ, uh, unjoined to the church, doesn't have visible and tangible expression in the world. The church, unconnected to Christ, uh, is just another organization or club. But Christ and the church, joined together, makes the total Christ. Christ's spirit and body able to work in the world. This is the way that uh, Augustine put it in one of his commentaries. Christ and his church thus together make up the whole Christ, the total Christ. The church is one with Christ, and the saints are acutely aware of this unity. Let us rejoice then and give thanks that we have become not only Christians, but Christ himself. Do you you understand and grasp, brothers and sisters, God's grace towards us? Marvel and rejoice, we have become Christ. For if he is the head, we are the members. He and we together are the whole man. The fullness of Christ then is the head and the members. But what does head and members mean but Christ in the church? This is, uh, if, we, if we dwell on it, this is incredibly good news. It is incredibly good news that we are joined to Christ so as to be his expression, the extension of his person and work in our world. This, this news uh, has been life-saving to me as a pastor. You know, it's easy enough to grasp uh, how the Christian message is good news for sinners, right? That Jesus' grace means that we are included in him. We used this uh, language in our prayer of confession earlier. Right, that we are so one with Christ that we, he takes our sin unto himself. He gives us his righteousness so that God looks at us and he sees us as just as righteous, just as beloved as he sees his own son. So we come into the Christian faith, and that is good news, that we rest on the finished work of Jesus, his death for our life. That's good news. But it can feel at times in ministry, Uh, in the work of the everyday life of the church, uh, it can be hard to see how that's good news, right? It can feel like we begin our life with Christ, but then the extension of the work of Christ, loving the broken human beings that both make up the members of a church and that, that constitute our neighborhood and our city, our community, it can seem like while we come in on Jesus's work, we move on based on our own work. Right, that the growth of the church, the health of the church, the thriving of the church has mostly to do with our gifts, our abilities, our love, our good ideas, our capacity, our leadership ability. And you see, if we understand uh, this metaphor that we are the body of Christ, it means that just as our life in Christ rests on his finished work, our ongoing life in him rests in his ongoing work in the world. Right, that it's not up to us, it's not our work that seeks to love our neighbors, love our families, build community, serve the poor, but it's a continuation of the work of Jesus. It's Jesus working in us and through us for the good of what Paul says here is the common good, the good of one another, the good of our church, the good of our community, the good of those who are not yet a part of us. That it's not our work, our energy, our vision, our passion, but the vision, passion, and energy of Jesus 
uh, working in and ministering through us. So the beautiful good news of the gospel isn't just his finished work for us on the cross, but his ongoing work through us from the right hand of God. Guys, as a pastor, this is good news. It is good news to know that our vision for a church isn't bounded by my gifts. That it's not up to me to come up with the best strategy to evangelize and win our city. It's not up to me to come up with the the most creative and original ways to express the gospel that you've never heard before. Right? It's not up to the leadership gifts or capacities of our elders, our deacons, or our soon-to-be deaconesses uh, to figure out uh, exactly how to plan and to work the ministry of this church. What's up to us is to live in such a vital union with Jesus, receiving ministry from him, love from him, care for him, that we can then offer some pale shadow of that love, care, and grace towards one another, towards our neighbors, towards our community. So uh, the church exists as the continuation of the presence and person of Jesus uh, in our world. And then secondly, this metaphor shows us uh, that every member belongs in the church of Jesus Christ. And every member has a vital role to play in our life together. Paul extends this metaphor to show that each part of the body has a crucial and needed role to play in the overall health and function of the body. Right? He does this extended metaphor where he says, you know, if you're, if you're an eye, that's great, but what good would it be if everybody was an eye and the church was just one giant eye? Or if you're a foot and you think that, well, my part of the body is kind of stinky and nasty and to be hidden. How are you to think about that not being a valuable part? What would a body be without feet? Right? So he, he extends this metaphor to say, not only are we an extension of the person of Jesus, but each part, each part of the body is gifted by the Spirit of God and has an important role to play. That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on every man, woman, and child and equips them for for service in the church and in the world. Right? He tells us that our first experience of the Spirit, the first way we taste of the Spirit, is when we are brought from death to life and enabled to have faith in the first place. Right, that's what he says in these first few verses, in verse 3, where he says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. Right, no one would be able to confess the Lordship of Jesus, uh, trusting in Him, if not for the life-giving, life-breathing work of the Spirit bringing you there. And then he goes on to say that that same Spirit poured out on the men and women and children of the church equips them in spectacular and supernatural ways to serve one another in the body and to serve their community. Paul understood this outpouring of the Spirit to be a sure sign that the Messiah had come and that the kingdom had arrived on earth. You know, one of the ways that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and the inbreaking of his kingdom was that when the Messiah came, the Holy Spirit would be poured out not just on special people, for a limited period of time, but for all people in their everyday lives to do normal things and extraordinary things. The prophet Joel put it this way in Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. 
even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit was present uh, in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit seemed to come on special people for special tasks in a given amount of time. So the king would be anointed to rule and the Spirit of God would come and, and equip him for that task. Or a prophet would be given a message to preach, to proclaim, and the Spirit would come on that prophet to do his work. Or a priest would be anointed by the Spirit to do his special priestly work. But in the new covenant, in Christ, uh, what they looked forward to when it wasn't just spectacular and special people that got the Spirit, but everyday ordinary people would have the supernatural gift of the Spirit to live their lives with his power, with his giftings, with his ability, men and women together. And so that's the picture that Paul paints. Every one of us, recipients of the Spirit and gifted to serve one another. In this equation, he wants to point out that there is no room for boasting or for shame among us when we think about how we've been gifted by God. Right? There's no room for boasting. There's no room for the people whose gifts or whose abilities, whose, whose callings and service are more noticeable or more public. He says there's no room for you to think you're better than anyone else. Because what you've received is a gift from God, right? There's no room for pastors building their own uh, little kingdoms based on their own, their own giftings, no matter how wonderful those may be. There's no room for people in leadership positions to go around strutting their stuff or with their chin held high, uh, looking for everybody else in the church to bow before them or to puff up their egos. He says, look, there's no room for that with you. And in the same way, there's no room for anyone to hang your head and say, what does this church need me for? Right? If they've got other people who are better, better fits for teaching or for serving or for singing or for, uh, for leading certain ways, there's no room for anybody to say, what, what role do I have to play here? I'm a nobody. Right? And we all have a tendency to do this. Right? There's something that happens in a church where we all sit back and say, somebody better surely could come along and do what needs to be done. Right? We know that people need to give to the church, but certainly there's wealthier people in the church that ought to be giving, and that's how we're going to make it as a church. Or we know that somebody needs to be serving with children, but you know what? I'm, I lose my temper sometimes, and I'm not always great at teaching or stringing my thoughts together. Surely somebody better will come along. And what Paul's saying here is no. No. On the one hand, there is nobody better. Right? Uh, they're, God, this church, as messy and as broken and as weak and as flawed as we are, we are God's plan for caring for one another. We are God's plan for caring for our children. We are God's plan for walking the streets of this neighborhood and, and, and sharing our faith. Right? We are God's plan. And there's nobody better coming along. Right? With each new membership class, I keep waiting. You know, when are the, when are the, when's the A-team going to come? Uh, but we, that's a joke. You, you people are wonderful. Um, but we, we are, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of all of the good reasons why we can think of somebody better, we are the ones that God says, no, no, you are my hands, you are my feet, you are my tongue, you are my eyes, you are the body. You know, interestingly enough, uh, this, this language of describing a body of people, a group of people using the language of body, uh, was not new to Paul. It was not uncommon in the Greco-Roman world uh, for political leaders to describe a city or to describe a, a nation as a body of people. 
But in nearly every example that we have of, of somebody in the ancient Roman world using this language, the metaphor was always used in the same way. It was always used to keep the people uh, at the bottom of society content at the bottom of society. The logic always worked basically like this. Look, a city's like a body. Uh, there are some parts that have money, that have power, that have influence, uh, and there's some parts that don't. And if God made you a toenail, be a toenail. If you're a foot, stay a foot, stay happy as a foot. Don't rock the social order. Don't, don't try to be more than you've been made to be. Stay in your place. And compared to that, the way Paul uses the metaphor stands out dramatically because that is not the way he uses it. He uses it to dignify uh, the smaller parts. He uses it to lift up those people who might be tempted to view their gifts with shame or embarrassment. And he uses it to humble those who might be tempted to, use, to think of their gifts in overly uh, dramatic or heroic terms. He says, no, no, each piece, each part is valuable. In fact, you should aspire to the greater gifts. Even though every part's valuable, you should seek to develop your gifts, your abilities, so that no matter what your place, no matter what your giftings, you can deploy those, as he says, for the common good of all people. This church uh, needs every single one of us contributing to the overall health of the church, contributing to our mission. Somebody has once said, this isn't a new metaphor for me, uh, but that a church is often like a football game. There's a small group of people working really, really hard and desperately in need of a break, and thousands of people around them desperately in need of exercise, just watching. <laughs> and there's, there is a dynamic in the church that happens that way, where a few people work really, really hard, while many people stand and watch. And that is not healthy. Richard Loveless, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called Dynamics of Spiritual Life, writes about the way that, that spiritual renewal happens, both in our personal lives and in our corporate lives. Listen, to, I think this is a, a, a sad and apt description of the way that pastors and their churches often relate to each other. He says, an unconscious conspiracy often arises between the sinful flesh of pastors and that of their congregations. It becomes tacitly understood that the lay people will give pastors places of special honor in the use of their gifts if the pastors will agree to leave the congregation's pre-Christian lifestyles undisturbed and to not call for the mobilization of lay gifts for the work of the kingdom. Pastors are permitted to become ministerial superstars. Their pride is fed and their insecurity is pacified, even if they are run ragged. And their congregations are permitted to remain herds of sheep in which each has carefully turned to his own way. You hear what he's saying is that somewhere in the life of a church, a pastor and his members strike a bargain. And the bargain is this, pastor, you use your gifts and we will uh, puff up your ego because we know you're insecure and you need it. So we'll, we'll pat you on the back. We'll always say, nice work, pastor. Thanks so much, pastor. I've never heard it that way, pastor. And while your ego is filled up, here's the deal. You do the ministry and don't ask all that much of us. And what Paul is saying here is that is not the way it's meant to be. It's not to, meant to be a few select few doing the ministry while everyone else gets ministered to. But everyone together, arm in arm, ministering to one another. If you have ever been to a graduation 
from the city rescue mission. If you have not been to one of those, you should go to one. Um, but uh, a few hundred people will cram into this building twice a year uh, to celebrate the progress and work that God has done in the lives of people who've graduated out of this program that, that's housed on this property. Many of you are, have been through that. We have some CRM graduates with us. We have others of you that are, that are looking forward to that day very, very much. Hallelujah. Amen. But there is a beautiful moment that happens at the end of that service. Uh, where everyone stands and they lock arms together and they sing a song. It's the same song every time. Uh, they repeat the verse, I think, nine or ten times, so it will be stuck in your head forever when you leave this place. <laughs> they sing, I need you. You need me. We are all a part of God's family. I need you, and you need me, and we are all a part of God's family. And it's a beautiful moment because it's, it's people some who are graduating, others who are still in the midst of, of God's redemptive recovery work in their life during that season. Oftentimes, the balcony is packed with people who graduated from that program before. It'll also be surrounded by the staff, the financial supporters, people who give so much uh, to see these folks to this moment. And in that moment, it's clear we need one another. Right? If we're sinners, if we're addicts, if, we're, if, we, if we know that we can't do it alone, we need one another. Then we have to lock arms together and say, I need you. And you need me. Because we are a part of God's body together. And it's easy to say those words in a sentimental moment. But in a church family, where that gets worked out is when you're changing diapers in the nursery. When you're showing up early to welcome guests. When you're going up to the person you've not seen at church before, haven't seen in a long time, and overcoming your anxiety to introduce yourself, to take them out to lunch. When you're willing to get over your insecurity, to lead a group, teach a class, do all those kinds of things. When you come out of hiding to join a growth group and be known by others and, and offer yourself to them and to their growth. That's where we tangibly work out what it means to be the body, to need one another in all of our weakness and in all of our strength. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would lead us evermore into the recognition that we are your body. That we are joined to you so intimately, so organically, and so deeply that you live your life through us as we cling to you in faith. And Lord, increasingly, that you would lead us into the reality that we are a body. That there is no incidental part of this body. There is no small part of this body but that we need one another. We offer gifts of God's grace and his blessing that, that, that are needed in this family. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue by your spirit to equip, to gift, to develop uh, each one of us for the service and ministry of this church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.